You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Today, uh, Zach's going to talk to us about worship, so I brought in uh, a prayer from the prayer book that I've kind of always liked the language. It's uh, a prayer for before worship, so let's pray. O Almighty God, who pourest out on all who desire it the spirit of grace and supplication, deliver us when we draw near to thee from coldness of heart and wanderings of mind, that with steadfast thoughts and kindled affections we may worship Thee in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Zach? Amen. Okay. Based on what I'm hearing you all say and you have in your fridges, I like you. <laughs> and we're going to get along just fine, especially all the Asian love in here. So I grew up in Hawaii and uh, thought I was Asian until I left Hawaii. My mom said I would come home from preschool. I was... if. Uh, my preschool picture is basically sea of Japanese and Chinese people and me. And I was, ex- ex- especially when I was a kid, it was like platinum blonde, just, you know, white, so white. And I looked so different from everyone else and I didn't know it. Like I would come home and uh, talk to my mom about being a good little Japanese boy. Like that's what my teacher always said to me. And so that's what I came home. Uh, and so there's just lots of Asian in my my psyche and blood and the way I think because I was I lived and breathed that uh, so it's strange um, being in Birmingham Alabama you know it's a it's a different place and ironically my parents are here my mom was from Gunnersville uh, and so there's there's a strange southern quality in my blood even though it's not in my accent I came here thinking it would feel more foreign than it does and I feel like ah, I've come home and there's roots uh, of the culture that feel like me I want to talk about worship today. I want to talk about four things and then hopefully leave lots of time for questions. Um, I want to talk about defining worship. I want to talk about the value of worship in our prayer book tradition and talk about what we, what I hope and what we as ministers and just what we hope at Advent that you all actually get out of our worship services, what we hope you hear, what we hope you receive. And then a little teaser. I want to talk about the ruts of righteousness. I know that doesn't make any sense to you. Um, in defining worship, I think it's really helpful because a lot of times when people converse about worship, especially if they're Christians, they speak past one another. And a, a lot of times that's because we're making category mistakes or distinctions because this word worship is so broad. I think it's really helpful, therefore, to diagram something that may illumine to you how the Bible describes and thinks of worship in, in a, what I would consider concentric circles. And in the broadest circle here, I might call this circle just worship in its totality. When God created us, and this is part of the Genesis narrative that's really interesting if you study the language, um, but when God created us, he created us as worshiping beings. He created us as people who would be, by virtue of the fact that we're his creation, oriented toward him in a manner of worship. We're creation He's creator. He's God. We are not. Creation looks at God and says, you've made me. I must worship you. Um, God has put desires and longings in our hearts that are worshipy, I would say. The way we operate is 
through worship. And someone said, well, a, a psychologist who was uh, writing an article about the nature of uh, interplay between sin and psychology says, we don't just sort of stumble our way into sin. We worship our way into sin. I thought that was a very helpful way of thinking about the fact that every last one of us, believers, non-believers alike, we're all created as worshiping beings. That's the fundamental thing that unites all of humanity is that our hearts are like beams that shoot out uh, worship pointers. Um, I was describing this concept to our fifth grade confirmands. And so I brought in my collection of Marvel cards because I was, I nerded it up as a middle schooler. And I brought, I said, you guys probably collected Pokemon cards, but in my day, we collected Marvel cards. So all these Marvel comic cards, I pulled out Cyclops. And if you've seen the movies or know anything about Cyclops, his special power is that without his glasses, if he just opens his eyes, whatever he looks at fires a beam of destruction toward that area. So if I'm looking at you, you're toast. Like, it's just this <laughs> explosion, right? And so they developed that for the X-Men, these glasses that he would wear so that he can open his eyes and it's, the beam is contained and he can shoot it when he wants to, but not all the time. And I would say that you and I are like Cyclops. We shoot beams of worship everywhere we go and the desires of our heart, whether it's to God or something else. And the reality is you and I are created as worshiping beings, which means that Something has the affection of our heart. Something does. I'll tell you that God's redemption is to reorient our worship back toward him. We could describe salvation as God's project to reclaim the worship that he deserves. All right? Because after the fall, we went in a thousand different places, pointing our worship. And what that is called, that aiming at worship anywhere else from God, what does the Bible call that? Sin and idolatry. It calls, that's precisely what it is because, again, we don't just sort of stumble our way into sin. We sin because our heart loves something other than God. I mean, that, just tease that out for the rest of your life and you've got a very good definition of the way sin works, okay? Um, and so again, Christian, non-Christian, we're all worshipers. In a, in a middle sphere of that uh, is what we would call Christian worship, And that is when our hearts are reclaimed by Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and pointed to God the Father. So notice the Trinitarian language I gave. Uniquely Christian worship is Trinitarian in nature and it's centered in Christ. So because of the Holy Spirit's work in our life, our whole lives can be reclaimed and oriented back, re-aimed toward God. And as you go about your day-to-day life, as you wake up, as you go to sleep, that orientation toward God Almighty in the power of the Spirit through Jesus Christ is Christian worship. That means your vocation, your day-to-day job, what you wake up to do with your kids or with uh, your elderly aunt that you live with. Is that right, Marlon? Or whoever it is. Those, those interactions can be worshipful and oriented toward God even as they're oriented toward others, or they cannot. And when they are oriented toward the Lord in Christ by the power of the Spirit... That's Christian worship. Now, the third sphere is what we often use when we're talking about worship, especially in this context. And I'll just add one more word to that. Gathered. Gathered Christian worship. That's that unique thing that we just did at 9 o'clock or will do at 11 o'clock or did at 7.30 or did at 5. When Christians choose 
to gather themselves together and orient themselves around God through a series of rituals. Okay, and I, whether, if you're a free-form Pentecostal church, you've still got a series of rituals that you engage in that constitute what you do when you gather together as a as a community. And what I would say is that gathered Christian worship, God intends for that to kind of be like a a distilled version of all of the whole life worship. In a sense, I would say that as our lives are oriented in a worshipful manner, when we gather here, God is attempting to reorient us or recalibrate us to be these kinds of whole life worshipers out there. So do you see the connection between what we do in that building together and what happens in our in our lives in a worshipful oriented manner. I don't know about you, but uh, I love the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. What I love is the second line. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. As a guitarist, that makes a lot of sense to me. Because even if my guitar just sits on a wall or in a case, if I pull it out after a few days, it's a little out of tune. I need to actually retune it and recalibrate it. And I would say that when we come to, to worship, God is is gathering our sinful, poorly aimed hearts and pointing them back toward Him, the one true living God. He's pointing that beam of worship. So I'd say, interestingly enough, when you and I gather for worship and we start, we don't begin to worship then. It's almost like God, we don't begin worship, we aim it. All right? So we've been worshiping beings all around, all in this world as we go about it. And God has grabbed a hold of us and said, don't forget, you're prone, it's me. In fact, that's why God has given us that weekly worship service, is to re-aim us. And when you start to think about it in that way, you start to ask the question, why wouldn't I come? Why wouldn't I be a part of this? Because all of a sudden, this is where I kind of find the centrality and focus of my being for the rest of this. Notice how, too, this kind of tears down the wall of what some people describe as the sacred-secular distinction. There's the world out there, and then there's sort of God's house and God's domain in here. Now, one can understand the use of that terminology to describe the fact that when we gather, God displays his presence and power in unique ways simply because we're gathered, and he gives us a few gifts like the word and the sacraments that are special sort of dispensations of who he is. But at the same time... um, it's a little bit cumbersome if we begin to think that God's there and then I have my life out here and you can see where the problems start to arise because all of a sudden, God doesn't necessarily have to inform out here. And so I'd like you, brothers and sisters, biblically, to think of your lives as governed and established by God everywhere you go in an orientation of worship. And when we come here, we... We merely but powerfully come here to recalibrate after getting knocked around and getting out of tune that week. I hope that's a helpful way of you to think about your life um, in that way. The value of worship in the prayer book tradition. Two things. One is a historical thing. I don't know if you've noticed, but the language of our services don't sound like language that we might use, like words that we might use on the street all the time, right? We're not beseeching people everywhere we go. Um, 
and uh, you know, we're not talking about thy fatherly goodness or anything like that. Maybe some of you are because you're trying to be all Anglophile and uh, enjoy Downton Abbey and appreciate sort of this English culture, which we get sometimes. People will come here simply because they're Anglophiles, and it's like, come on, there's a, actually a real God and a real Jesus here, uh, and he actually probably doesn't have a British accent. So think about that. If anything, it's probably Aramaic or Middle Eastern in accent if he's speaking to us in English, you know. Um, but I don't even know where I was going with that. <laughs> there, so our language is old. It's historic. And I think one of the things is not to simply glory in being a church that connects with old things. That's kind of irrelevant. But what is valuable is thinking through the fact that as you and I worship, we're connecting with the worshiping church across time, what our creed calls the communion of the saints. So not only do we worship with the, the physical people that are gathered here, and even the physical people across the globe right now that you can think of that are worshiping, we gather with the, the church, small c Catholic, the church universal that has gone before. And one of the beautiful things as we engage in this old prayer book liturgy is that we are praying the same prayers that our brothers and sisters in the past have prayed. We're carrying on that heritage, but more importantly, we're remaining steadfast in the same gospel that saved them and kept them. That same gospel is saving us and keeping us. But even more important than the historic reason for why worshiping in the prayer book tradition is valuable, it's also biblical. It's estimated that about two-thirds of the Book of Common Prayer are quotations of or allusions to scripture itself. And so the amazing thing about thinking about the Book of Common Prayer and engaging in liturgical worship uh, in the way that we do is that even our response to God in worship is his own gift. They aren't our inventions and made-up words. They're his word given to us. Isn't that a remarkable thing? That God is so gracious and so giving that not only does he give us his son, give us Jesus, but he gives us the very words that we can respond to him with. Because I think we'd be a little tongue-tied if we had to talk to God on our own without his very gift of his word being given to us. So it's one of the values of liturgical worship is that we get to just say to God what he's given us to say. That's, that's huge. And it's biblical. Um, there are biblical reasons. And I'd encourage you uh, to look back in the annals of our audio online uh, at adventbirmingham.org. I've taught a couple of sections of classes and we could probably email those links and make it easier for you. If you're interested in way more detail than what I did about how to think about uh, worship in the prayer book tradition, I kind of dissect our liturgy and hopefully for the purpose of putting it back together and making our experience alive and not just rote on Sunday mornings. And that's how I actually segue into what we hope that you all get out of our worship services. All the words and all the symbols, all the visual and auditory and verbal experience that you have in Sunday morning should drive you to one place. It should drive you to the foot of the cross where Jesus declares it is finished. I love, um, if, you're, if you're in the nave and you're facing the front, the window's off to the side in what's called the transept over here. Above the, the window where Jesus is crucified, I don't know if you ever noticed it before, but there's an angel holding a banner. And that banner reads three words. Does anybody know what those words are? It is finished. It is finished. Um, that encapsulates what we hope that you get out of prayer book worship. I think sometimes... 
it's such an overwhelming experience with all the words, with all the visuals of our room, and with all the kind of pomp and circumstance from it, that we might lose the simplicity of it. And the simplicity of it is throughout this entire experience, we hope you receive again and again that though we are sinful and are great sinners, Jesus Christ is a great Savior. We hope that you hear these parting words over and over again, this kind of divine, I love you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because the reality is we never walk into church triumphant. We walk into church rather defeated and in need of a a good word and good news. And that's something that is really important that we really value at Advent is that one word is heard above the fray because you go out to the rest of this world and all you hear is bad news. And yet God has revealed in his word a word of good news that is Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. And so the hope is that your ears are tuned and perked and ready by the power of the Holy Spirit to receive that word over and over again in a worship service. And the reason we never get past needing to hear the gospel is because we freshly sin every day. If we stopped sinning, maybe we'd stop needing the gospel. But I don't know if you want to raise your hand and test that. Uh, because if you do, Andrew had a good point of, he said one time in a sermon in some other church, that he said, you know, if any of you are sinless, raise your hand. He was rhetorical, expecting that no one would. And yet, a man did this. And, and so his wife was sitting right next to him. And Andrew just said, hold that thought. I wonder what your wife thinks about that, right? And, uh, you know, none of us are without sin. And anybody who lives intimately with us, uh, a roommate, a spouse will know, you know, it's just not, it's not going to work to hide that stuff. And so we come in needing one word, one word principally all day and every day. And we certainly need it in worship. And unfortunately, because our, our, our church has a heart for those who have been burned by the church, um, it is that the church has decided to platform and say 10,000 other things that we've gotten ourselves into trouble. Uh, and so even a danger, some of the Achilles heel of prayer book worship is that you listen to and truly sort of get fixated on all the other things besides the gospel. And so I want to say to you, always be letting that drive you to Jesus. Always be letting that drive you to the cross. And if anything sort of enamoring you that isn't taking you in that direction, it's probably not helpful. And stop looking at it and start looking at the cross. Start looking at the cross. What we don't want you walking out of worship saying, I mean, this would be my preference, even though I actually know it is, and I say these kinds of things, but to sort of make a point about it. Don't want you walking out of worship saying, Wow, that was a great choir anthem. Or wasn't that a stirring sermon? Or isn't the stained glass beautiful? Or wasn't that just uh, is uh, all the pomp and circumstance? It just lifts me up. We don't necessarily want you wor- walking out of worship saying those kinds of things. If you've truly encountered the living God and truly experienced what the liturgy and all the stuff is all about, you're walking out of worship saying, isn't Jesus wonderful? Don't we have a beautiful Savior? And if... Your mind's kind of gone in other directions. Maybe we haven't done our job as leaders of helping you see clearly as, as through a, a clear glass, Jesus Christ and him crucified for us. And so finally, I want to talk about the ruts of righteousness um, in Psalm 23. And the, I guess the question before us is what good 
is all this repetition. We're doing the same thing over and over again. What good is it? I want to tell you something that's sort of a personal testimony about how this works in my life. Psalm 23 says this key line, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Some translators believe that word path means rut or actual grooved ground. Think about it this way. Uh, a path of righteousness is is felt and known because it's well-worn. I mean, before streets are there, streets are usually paved by animals or other folks who have found a smooth place and worn grooves into that path over time because they've walked it, right? Animals have walked this path. And I'll tell you uh, that when a storm comes and you can't see the road, your feet can feel that well-worn path because it's been worn so many times before. And I think that the liturgy works like that. Sometimes you go through it and it's not sort of gripping your heart like it should. I mean, ideally, we're all weeping every time we come and receive this morning prayer liturgy or this Holy Communion liturgy. We're all weeping because we're taking these words for what they really mean and we're letting them hit our hearts for how deep they're really supposed to go. But the reality is, even when we don't take them to heart, we walk a certain path. And I, I believe that they wear grooves into our souls. They actually start to wear grooves so that in the dark night of your soul, Monday through Saturday, when the path is not clear to you, all of a sudden you have grooves and your feet can feel the edges of those and you know where to take the next step. I'm speaking metaphorically, but now let me speak specifically. I grew up in a tradition that didn't necessarily wear grooves of confession and repentance in a worship service. There was no place where we necessarily said, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me for my sin. And then we heard a word that said, in Christ, you are forgiven. I started in college going to a church that did this uh, in a liturgical fashion and it started to wear grooves into my soul. And what I found is when I, I was going to say stumbled my way into sin, but when I worshiped my way into sin, Monday through Friday, and I felt those waves of guilt come over me. It became almost Pavlovian in that the, the bell of my sin rung and all of a sudden I drooled the liturgy. Okay, The bell of my sin rung and I felt the natural thing to do, almost instinctual, was to stop and confess it to the Lord. And then I heard my own pastor declaring words of pardon to me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions from you, to remember your sins no more. I heard that voice, and I will tell you, that's the Christian life in a nutshell. Confession and repentance. And it was worn into me through grooves that the liturgy made. And so I'd say it's valuable, this is valuable, to come and to experience these repetitions over and over again. And yes, I want your heart to be engaged because it's a heartfelt, hearty liturgy. But even when it's not, allow it to wear grooves so that when you're alone, you don't know what to do. You have the guide of faithful prayers and faithful scripture passages and the very liturgy to lead you in how you need to talk to God. That's all I have to say. So uh, we've got about 10 minutes for questions. Go ahead and ask away really anything. I have some outward repentance. Um, okay. <laughs> Andrew says, uh, let the words of my heart and the meditations, wait, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be ever mindful. I'm sorry. Always acceptable, Always acceptable to you and your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I've been saying that a lot lately.
because it's easy to get prideful about your righteousness when you're happily married and you have these kids and everything's going great and you're like, I'm not committing adultery and murder and all these things. And but I'm so convicted about my words and my thoughts, and so that has really been mm. it's, it's it's stopping people in its tracks lately, and it's um it's very really convicting and it's showing me my sin. It's like it's putting this light on it. And uh, anyways. This morning, we're sitting at breakfast, and um, somebody brought something up to me that I had said something, I talked about somebody years ago, an old boyfriend, actually, and she brought it up and said that she had told this old boyfriend's, you know, partner's wife about something I'd said, and I was, I just, like, mm. and I went into church this morning just, like, seated, you know, Yeah. and um, today, like, we, I just, I couldn't even think straight, and then the confession came, and it was just, like, it was just like Release. taking a shower almost, you know, yeah. it's just like, like it's finished. I mean, we are still in a sinful world and like my past sin is like still wreaking havoc, you know, but in my current sin, but it was just, I really was just brought to like my knees today. You know? mm. um, I mean, I guess it's, it's a good thing. It's a great thing, but, but it was just, it was a really beautiful service for me. Mm. And I don't even remember yep. the, the sermon really, but I, I remember the confession because that was like my need for for Christ was just really really evident today. Yeah, I feel you. I feel that there was it was two Thursdays ago. It was a Thursday worship service, and right before the service, uh, I was getting ready to preach, and I've also been heavily involved in the sound system. And someone came up to me and was complaining about the sound system, and there was not much I could do, and I responded to him. In a not nice way. Let's just put it that way. And it was, it was not nice what I said. Uh, really not nice. And I'm not going to repeat it to you because you guys might fire me. Um, and that was right before the service where I was supposed to preach the gospel. That's horrible. And so anyway, I said this not nice thing. The dude walked off. And then I got to the worship service and it was just like you walk into worship with an open wound when yeah. your sin is ever before you in the words of the Psalms. Um, strangely... If you're, if you're not feeling that, you're not really where God wants you. Because that's where we all really are. We have these open wounds that we need God to come and heal and sow over and apply the balm of the gospel to. And in many ways, the liturgy's job is to kind of poke at that until we get honest about that wound. And then once we're honest, the, the liturgy swoops in and God declares a bunch of things of healing and I'd say, come to worship with open wounds. I hate people who say, leave your burdens at the door. This is a holy place. <laughs> Expletives. Like, you should come and lay them at the feet of Jesus and watch what he does in his power and his forgiveness. Bring them in. Bring them in and watch what he does. You know. Other questions? Thoughts? could be a random question about why we do what we do. Some things we do are very strange. The addition of the, the comfort words has happened, I guess, over the last year or so, or at least maybe printing them. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's been... I, I've really enjoyed yeah. that. I try to take it home with me. Comfortable words are those four scripture sentences that happen in the communion liturgy right after... Uh, the declaration of forgiveness. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I missed the second one. And then there's a fourth one. 
God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Yeah. Uh, first Timothy, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Yeah, okay. Yeah, those comfortable words were put in there by Cranmer. Um, he received them from a German liturgy during the time of the Reformation and thought this would be really good to put in the communion liturgy. And previous revisions or uh, revisions after Cranmer had done that in the 16th century uh, moved them to the sideline and eventually made them optional. They're optional in our prayer book. Uh, they're not optional for the Advent anymore. We must say them because they're good. They're good words to to carry with us. Yeah. And if you leave your burdens at the door, then those comfortable words can't speak to you. Exactly. You have to well, what do you do when you have to go back out? Pick them back up. Pick them back up, right. <laughs> I guess that's the idea is like, leave your coats here, check your coats at the door and come do holy things and then go to your burdened life again. The whole point, the whole point is to unburden you. The whole point is to unburden you. What else? Is there a quiet bunch? I remember one of your classes, and I'm not going to remember what, and you might not even be able to explain this to us in a minute, of kind of the, the process that the whole service takes us through, mm. where we're ready to go back out into the world. Mm. Yes, I do. Two, two. Ah, Fontaine. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can do it justice. I would say it's particularly the morning prayer liturgy. Um, well, I can draw it real quick. I think little charts are helpful. Sometimes in these kind of complex liturgies, we lose the forest for the trees. But the morning prayer is meant to take us on a very specific journey. And if you're paying attention and not getting too annoyed by all the up and down and stuff and recognize that that up and down is part of the package, we kind of, uh, morning prayer takes us on a journey that I'll just draw by line like that. And um, it starts here. And then if you notice the way the liturgy works, it's sort of drawing us into God's heart. And it does that through scripture readings and singing. It's kind of a devotional way of God wooing us to himself. And it kind of climaxes here around... Uh, well, interestingly, I probably should put in a little divot right there. That's more accurate. Because right at the beginning of morning prayer, we come in and we acknowledge our sin and our need. And then God declares our pardon to us. And then after declaring our pardon to us, says, don't forget, you're a child of God. And so we enter into this cycle of scripture reading and psalm and singing. And each one, God's like, come to me, come to me. I love you. I love you. And then as we get closer to what I might describe as God's heart, we pray these more intimate prayers, like these series of prayers like the suffrages. And uh, we eventually get to our church's most intimate prayers, the prayers of intercession. You'll notice that they get more intimate as we go along because we're being brought to God's heart. And then the sermon is preached. A few things are said. And after being brought into God's heart, we're sent back into the world for holy living, which is why we always say, let us go forth in the name of Christ. And we all say, thanks be to God. And it's this idea that worship draws us in to propel us out. Worship and mission are inherently related. So, in a short amount of time. There you go. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. 
If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.